Our second Bible reading this evening comes from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 1 to 11, and this can be found on page 1,239 in some of the Pew Bibles. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labour pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, uh, if you come weekly, you know the deal. There is an outline. We work through the passage verse by by verse, so keep your Bibles open. But those of you who are visiting and new, um, there is an outline and we work out verse by verse. So keep your Bibles open. This is the Word of God. We want to hear what he has to say to us. And, of course, we want to depend on him, uh, asking him for his help. So let's do that and ask God for his help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we reflect uh, on this passage on these verses. We pray, Lord, that you help us see the urgency we must live with, how we must live in light of knowing what the end will be like. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a first big question, when will the world end? When will the world end? Now, this is a big question that many throughout the centuries have thought about and have tried to work out and have predicted over and over again. Now, this is just from my brief research. Over the centuries, the world will end either by Armageddon, by some judgment day, or by some cosmic event like a comet smashing into Earth or some asteroids smashing in. Now, do you know this? In 365 AD, the world was meant to end. It didn't. It was announced by a French bishop. It didn't happen. In 793, the world was meant to end, prophesied by a Spanish monk. It didn't. 848 AD, the world was meant to end, predicted by a prophetess didn't happen. 1533, it was meant to end. It was meant to be Judgment Day, calculated by a mathematician this time. didn't happen. In the same year, 533, an Anabaptist prophet, he predicted that the second coming of the Lord Jesus will take place in Strasbourg and 144,000 will be saved while the rest of the world will be consumed by fire. didn't happen. 1654, a physician this time predicted the world would end. didn't happen. You get the idea, right? We keep him going. 1688, mathematician calculated the world would end based on his calculations from the book of Revelation. Didn't happen. And when that didn't happen, he revised his calculation and said it was 1700. Didn't happen anyway. 1697, a Puritan this time predicted the world would end. Didn't happen. He revised it, 
thought it said 1716. Didn't happen. And then he said 1736. Well, the sad thing for him was he died before that date happened to see that his prediction failed anyway. Next, 1719, another mathematician predicted that a comet would come in and smash the earth and would kill everyone. Didn't happen. 1736, another prediction of another comet. Didn't happen. 1910, uh, another prediction of a comet that would leave toxic gases over our atmosphere and would just kill everyone. Didn't happen. 1914, you getting the idea? Jehovah Witnesses predicted the end of the world. They revised it, didn't happen. Then they said 1915, didn't happen. Then they said 1918, didn't happen. Then they said 1925, didn't happen. Uh, 1920, and then 1925, and then 1941, and then 1975, and then 1994, and then 1997. Didn't happen. That was almost 20 years ago. I think they've taken a break from predicting. (laughs) This year, 2016, five predictions that the world would end this year. Hasn't happened yet. Now, you get the idea. What are we to make of this? You see, those are only a few out of the hundreds, literally hundreds of predictions of the end of the world. And, and, and of course, they're not all religious in nature. There are religious nature, end of the day, Armageddon type stuff, but they're also ones from scientists and mathematicians, from comets and asteroids. But what are we to make of this? The end of the world. When will it happen? Why is it that there is this fascination with working out when the end of the world actually will be? Well, I suspect it's a bit like an exam, knowing the date of your exams, you know, just so that you know how much time you have to study or how much time left you have to cram for your exams. So people want to know so that they can make use of their time now. But it is important, isn't it? Even though they have this fascination, they try to predict it was, in a sense, out of good intentions. Because if the world is going to end, if there will be a day of judgement, if there will be a day of reckoning, if there will be a day where all of us, all individuals who have ever lived on this earth will stand before the God of the universe and stand in judgement, wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you want to know when that will happen? You see, because knowing that affects us now. Knowing the end affects our life now. Knowing the end, in fact, makes sense of our life now. And so that's why when we turn to this text, we can in a sense understand why the Thessalonians wanted to know when the end was. You see, they wanted to be prepared for the coming of the Lord Jesus. They wanted to know the date so that they could be prepared. But the Apostle Paul, he turns around and he says, well, that's not how you prepare for the coming of Jesus. You don't prepare by knowing the times and the seasons. And that's what Paul says right from the beginning. Have a look. Chapter 5, verse 1. And so Paul, in a sense, says to them, you should know this. You don't need to know this. Verse 1, about the times and the seasons, brothers. You do not need anything to be written to you. And that's because they've been taught by the Apostle Paul already. They've been taught that the return of Jesus will be sudden and unexpected. You can't predict it. It will happen and when it happens, you will know. It will be a bit like a burglary inside a home, stealing stuff from you. You never expect burglaries to happen, right? And so he says in verse 2, For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord, that is the day of judgment, will come like a thief in the night. Now that's not suggesting there that Jesus will come in and steal from this world. It's in a sense telling us the nature of his appearing. It will be sudden. 
and it will be unexpected. And so you can't predict it. It will be sudden and unexpected. Now you can see why Paul used this illustration, don't you? You know, in Victoria, I did a bit of research, the average home burglary rate is one in 67 homes. And so if you think about our room here, there's more than, there are more than 67 people, so at least one of you would have been burgled before. Our old suburb in Ardea, over the other side of the city, it's the seventh most burgled suburb in Victoria, one in 32 homes. So I was shocked when I found that out. Now in Surrey Hills, we live here, one in 71 homes. It's a bit better staying here. But anyway, how is it possible that thieves can just come in and steal? Well, do they leave a postcard to warn the residents? Dear resident, Monday night when you go out to the movies with your friends, which you told the world about on Facebook, I'll be coming to your home, entering via the backyard, which you always leave unlocked, and I'll come through one of the windows and steal that prized jewellery that you showed on Facebook and steal whatever else I can find. Is that what thieves do? Of course not. They don't do that. I mean, if all the thieves did warn beforehand, there won't be any burglary at all in Victoria. There won't be any surprise. I mean, you won't be going to the movies anymore if you've got a postcard like that. You'll be at home waiting, holding a cricket bat, ready for the smackdown or perhaps call the police. Depends how tough you are. And so the return of Jesus, the end of the world, the day of reckoning, the day of judgment will be sudden and it will be unexpected. You can't predict it. It will come. It will happen. And when it comes, it will also be inescapable. You can't escape it. It will affect every living soul on this earth. And you might be thinking, life is going well. Always going along smooth and cruisy without a care in the world. Life is good, family is good, study is good, home is good, work is good, holidays, it's all good. But then suddenly the labour pains begin, the contractions. That's how Paul describes it. You see, you can't stop it when labour pain comes. When the contractions start, you can't escape it. You can't turn on your belly or a husband going on the wife. Stop those contractions. You can't do that. Once it starts, it's inescapable. I remember the first time when Yvonne went into labour and you're meant to time the contractions when they start and they're meant, they're meant to get uh, uh, longer and bigger and stronger and closer together. And when it starts, you know, this is it. You can't escape. There's no return. There's no putting the baby back in. There's none of that at all. And so it's off to the hospital. But here you see what Paul was trying to describe that the coming of the Lord Jesus is like the pains of labour, but not in the sense of the pains, but it will be death and destruction. It will be far worse. And there's no escape for anyone. Look at verse 3. When they say, you know, these people are thinking, always oh, going well, peace and security, then sudden destruction comes on them, like labour pains come on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, you see that? We have to understand the weight of this verse. This is serious stuff. This affects everyone. It's not just for Christians, you see. It's for everyone who lives on this earth. You see, there's no escape when that day comes. You might be on holiday somewhere in some, on some nice deserted island. There's no escape. You will know it. You might be in the middle of traffic. There is no escape. You might be in the middle of your exams. Jesus returns. There's no escape. You have to escape that exam. 
You might like that. There is no escape. You might be even in the middle of your proposal that you've been planning for a long time to your girlfriend. You're on your knees. You're about to pop that question. Jesus returns. No escape. You can't ask. You can't ask and you'll never know. <laughs> now, I wonder, it also made me, made me think, what happens to those when Jesus does return and they're in the middle of their labour? But anyway... But, but you see, it's clear here, isn't it? There's no hiding from God at all when he returns. There's no hiding from God on judgment day. There's no playing with God, hide and seek. You know, you can't see me, God. There's none of that. There's no playing with God, dead fish. Like, you know, I'm dead. He'll just look over it. No, of course not. Even the dead in the grave will be raised back to life. And so the return of Jesus will be sudden. It will be unexpected and it will be inescapable. And so Paul says, don't bother working out the times and the seasons. Don't bother predicting. You can't. When it happens, it will happen and you will know it. All of you will know it. The world will know it. No one will escape. Now, I wonder how that makes you feel, knowing that, that this day is coming any minute now, that the day of the Lord, the day of reckoning is coming any minute. Now, I suspect for some of us it would unsettle us. It'll sort of make us a bit uneasy. You know, we've all got our life plans. We've got things that we have planned for the next week, the next month, the next year, the next few years. You know, you've booked tickets for holidays, but then you don't get to go. You've got a new job. You don't get to start the new job. You've planned a massive birthday party. You don't get to celebrate. You've got engaged, but you never get to marry. You know, it's unsettling, isn't it? I thought I've got my plans, God. You're going to stuff it all up. But you see, that day will return. It will be sudden, it will be inescapable and unexpected. And so if the day will come, any minute now, what do you do? What do we do? Well, if the day is coming, you prepare. You prepare. You be alert. You don't let it take you by surprise. And that's what Paul goes on to tell the Thessalonians. You see, he's reminding them here, you, you people in Thessalonica, because of who you are, because of where you belong, that is, you are people who have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and you've been brought into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Something massive has already happened with you people. You see, that's what happens with anyone who becomes a Christian. It's not merely that their worldview has changed. When someone becomes a Christian, it is massive. It's not just that they, they're no longer an atheist but they believe in God, far more than that. It's no, no, not merely that they now have a new set of moral standards to live by, it's far bigger than that. You see, when anyone becomes a Christian, they've been taken, rescued from the kingdom of darkness, from the kingdom of death and evil and wickedness and they've been brought over to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of light and of life. That's what happens to anyone who becomes a Christian. And so I often say with those, um, even those getting married, this is only the second biggest decision you'll ever make in life, getting married to that person. The first is becoming a Christian. That's the bigger change anyone can make. And so if you think about that in the eyes of God, there are only two types of people in this world. He divides a, a straight, clear line. Two types of people, those who are part of his kingdom and those who don't belong to his kingdom. And so Paul here, he reminds them, you people already belong to the kingdom. You you already belong to the light, you belong to the day. 
And so the return of Jesus should not take you by surprise at all. And so he says that, verses 4 and 5. But you, brothers, are not in the dark for this day to overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. And so Paul makes it clear there, right? You guys, you belong to the light already. It shouldn't take you by surprise. You belong. And so if you do, stay alert. Be alert. Be ready. Be focused. That is how you prepare. And then that's what Paul goes on to speak about. So firstly, he speaks about being alert. Be self-controlled, knowing that, the, that Jesus will return any minute. You see, if, you, if, you, if you're asleep and the end of the world comes, of course you'll be shocked and surprised. Or if you're drunk, he goes on to say, your mind will be cloudy and the Lord returns, of course you'll be shocked and surprised by that. But even just imagine that, imagine the first words you get to speak to the Lord are all slurred because of the alcohol. Now, of course, the, the day and night here are used as metaphors. To belong to the night means you're in the dark about salvation. You're still in the dark about Jesus. You're still in the dark about eternal life and so you're still in the kingdom of darkness. But then to belong to the day is used as a metaphor. You, you belong to salvation. You belong to Jesus. You have eternal life. You belong to the kingdom of light. And that's what he goes on to say in the next two verses. Verse 6 and 7, have a look. So then we must not sleep like the rest, but we must stay awake and be serious. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. And so this should get us to reflect on on this, on that. When Jesus returns, what do you want Jesus to catch you doing? Just imagine that if he was to return, and when he does return, what will he catch you doing? I remember hearing this story from a minister in the US, Francis Chan. He's a church planner and he shared about this story of his wife's faithful, God-fearing grandmother. She was a devoted Christian and longed to always spend, the, spend her time in prayer to the Lord and reading the word of God. Now there was this time where the family went off to watch a play at a theatre and him being a nice grandson, he turned to his grandmother during half-time and asked, so, grandmother, what do you think about, about the play so far? He was hoping that she would be enjoying it. She replied, oh, I don't want to be here. He, he's feeling bad. He, he thought he's doing something nice for the grandmother. Well, she goes, oh, honey, it's not that, I, I don't, it's not that, it's just that I don't know if what I want is to be here when Jesus returns. I'd rather be helping someone. I'd rather be praying for someone. But I don't want Jesus to return and find me sitting in a theatre just watching a play. And she goes on to say, I want him to see that I've been serving him, praying to him and waiting for him. Now, of course, that, that's a nice story. It's a true story. She's passed away now. Nothing wrong about going to the theatres if you're thinking about that. This past week we watched Tarzan and that was okay. But that was a person who reflected something of her heart, didn't it? It reflected something of her life. She was living in the light. The return of Jesus would not have taken her by surprise at all. She was alert and self-controlled. Now Paul says something else. Be prepared by being armed 
and ready. That's how you prepare, be armed and ready. And here he uses military clothing to, to describe putting on faith, hope and love. The three things, the three marks of genuine Christians, faith, hope and love. Now, it's a bit like, be prepared, put on these clothes. When you go to play soccer, you dress up appropriately. You put on your soccer gear, soccer boots, shin guards and whatever else soccer players wear. If you're getting married, you get prepared by dressing appropriately. For guys, you wear a suit. For girls, you wear stuff like dresses and makeup and stuff like that. But here, while you wait for the return of Jesus, this is how you get ready. This is how you get dressed. You keep close to your chest. What you put on your chest is faith and love. That is, while you wait for Jesus to return, know in your heart, know clearly exactly who you believe, who you trust. Live trusting in him. Live having faith in Jesus. Live having faith in his wonderful, glorious promises. And so when life you know, shakes us around, when my experiences in life tells me that I'm worthless, I'm a failure, I've mucked up, I've stuffed up, I remember the promises of Jesus and I trust in that. Or when my experiences are difficult and painful and heartbreaking, I will remember the wonderful promises of Jesus and I trust in that. Keep close to your heart, your faith in Christ. And of course, keep close to your heart, your love for Christ and those around. Not just for Jesus, but for those around. It's easy to forget that, isn't it? As Christians, we're actually commanded to love. We're commanded to love, to love Christ, to love each other. But I've heard this all too often, even from Christians. In the last few weeks, I've heard it a few times. I treat people the way they deserve. I said, that's not Christian, (laughs) You don't treat people the way they deserve. God doesn't treat us the way we deserve. No, you you treat them the way you want to be uh, treated. You love them. You love them. And so you keep that close to your heart. We keep that close to our heart. That is how we prepare. Who do we trust? Who do we love? And of course we keep close to our head, the hope of salvation. We know clearly in our heads, in our mind, where we will be where we will end up, that this life, that all the stresses and pressures of this life is not all there is to life. There is far more. There is eternity. There is this glorious hope of salvation. And so we see that. He says, this is how you prepare. Look at verse 8. But since we belong to the day, we must be serious and put on the armour of faith and love on our chest and put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. And now finally, Paul wants them to remember, this is what God has caught them to. Keep this in focus. God has caught you to salvation. That is God's desire. We heard in the beginning when Pete read from Peter, God's desire is not for anyone to perish, but for you to be saved. God wants us to be saved, not to be judged and punished. So keep the gospel in focus. That's the only thing that will save any soul. The gospel, that's the only thing that can prepare you, the gospel. And be active then in declaring that gospel, in encouraging each other. We have the gospel. I mean, it's the best thing to share, isn't it? When I've visited anyone, and particularly those who are old and frail and after accidents, 
the, the best thing to encourage them with is the gospel. Don't you know that God loves you still? Don't you know that your Saviour died for you? Don't you know that this temporary suffering will, will make its way up to an eternal weight of glory? It will change. Don't you know? It is the gospel that encourages and builds each other up. And so we see this in our final verses. Look at 9 to 11. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are doing. And so we see it's clear in our passage today, isn't it? The day is coming. The day is coming. What do we do? We be prepared. We be prepared. And so that's my question to all of us here tonight. Do you think you are prepared for the return of Jesus? Not just prepared for the end of your life. Prepared for the return of Jesus which can happen any time during your life. I mean, would you be prepared if Jesus was to return tonight? During our last song, would you be ready to confront, to see the Lord who will stand over you in judgment if Jesus returned during supper? If Jesus returned during our way home, would you be prepared? Would you know what to say? Would you be prepared the way that Paul told the Thessalonians to be prepared? Now, if Jesus returns, that will be it. That's it for this world. We have to understand how massive that is. That will be the end of this world and the new creation will come. Now tonight I suspect for some of you, you're perhaps not yet prepared. You know, you're you're, you're probably still doubting or questioning and that's okay. You're still thinking this through and that's okay. If that is you, take your time though. Do take your time, come along to our Christianity Explore course but I want you to hear what this passage says tonight and that is, we don't actually have all the time in the world. He can come tonight. We don't have all the time in the world. It's why at Christian weddings you hear the vows between the bride and groom. Often they'll say, they'll add, till till death parts us or till Christ returns. They acknowledge that Jesus might return before the day they die. And so none of us should ever think that I'll just believe in Jesus in on my deathbed, during my last minutes of life. That's the time to put my faith in Jesus. I mean, on one level, that's just being unrealistic. One, you don't know when that will happen and we saw this past week. Lives were lost unexpectedly. You don't know when that will happen or whether that will be a possibility or whether there will be the opportunity then to believe. And on another level, it also is uh, missing out of a life that God has called us to. Now, a life of knowing God, knowing his love for us, knowing his care, knowing his power. It's actually to miss out on a whole life that belongs to God, the wonder and joy of belonging to God. Now, in God's kindness, God has brought people to faith on their deathbed um, and praise God for those times and those situations. Three years ago, I had this uh, wonderful opportunity of sharing the gospel to an old lady who was in the face of death. She got cancer, deteriorated very quickly and day by day got weaker and weaker. In God's kindness, uh, I had the opportunity to share with her the gospel 
And she, in the kindness of God, responded in faith, accepted the Lord as her Lord and Saviour, accepted Jesus as her only Saviour and it was wonderful. It was such a joyful time for her and for the family, for those who were Christians in the family. Praise God for that. But as I reflected on that, how much better would it have been if she actually became a Christian early in life, if she, if she came to faith earlier, if she was prepared even earlier, not on the deathbed, but younger, it, it meant that she would have the opportunity to raise her children up in the faith. She would have the opportunity to live her life for things that will last beyond the grave, to love and serve the Lord, to store up treasures in heaven, to live her life bringing glory to God. How much better would it have been if she actually believed earlier? But in God's kindness, some do believe in their deathbed, but we must hear that tonight. We must hear this tonight. And that is, Jesus can return any minute. It will be sudden, unexpected, inescapable. And so how do you prepare if you have not yet placed your trust in Jesus? The best way to be prepared is to be prepared now, tonight, to put your faith in Jesus as the only saviour, and only king over your life. You prepare by becoming a Christian. That's the only way. That's the best way. But for some of you, if you are already a Christian, you're already in the light, you're already part of the day, you're already part of Jesus, you belong to him. What then for you, for many of us? Well, you get ready for the end by making the most of today. You get ready for the end by making the most of today. One of our in-house theologians in our church at our growth group last term, Ollie, he's a student minister, he said this, I was going to steal it as my own but I'll credit it to him. He said, live each day like Jesus is an hour away. Sounds good, doesn't it? Rhymes. Live each day like Jesus is an hour away. I mean, that should be true for us, isn't it? Jesus can come any time, any minute, any hour, but I wonder, reflecting on this, do we really believe it? Do you actually believe it, that tonight can be our last? Do you actually believe it? And if you do, what do you do? Now, I suspect for us, if we know that this is our last night here on earth, I suspect for us, after this, we won't be going home, doing more study, working more on our assignments, We won't be going home checking the internet, checking our bank balance. We won't be going home and just watching a movie. We won't be going home and and just wallowing in hatred and sin and bitterness. I mean, that would be to waste our last time, our last hours on earth. And so what would you do? Well, if Jesus is to return tonight, you make all and every opportunity to make your last hours count to make a difference, not just for these last hours, but for all eternity. And so if Jesus is to return in an hour for us who do belong to him already, we should be overjoyed, ecstatic, because what it will mean is that after that time, all that suffering we've been thinking about and hearing on the news, that will be a thing of the past. All the killing and murdering and massacres, that will finally end. For us who are Christians, it will be a day of joy, of great delight, for we will be in glory when Jesus returns. We will get to see our Lord Jesus face to face. We will finally be where we were destined to be, 
in our heavenly home. It will be so good. The glory, the joy, the celebration in the presence of God amongst all the angels that God has created. It will be a great day for us who belong. But if Jesus was to return in an hour, then for those who do not know him, it will be a day of terror. It will be a day that is terribly frightening. And I know that you have friends and family who don't know the Lord. I do. I've got friends and family who do not know the Lord. I try to weasel myself out into thinking that I'll just share the gospel with them on their deathbed. But that's, that's being a coward there. I mean, if Jesus was to return, isn't this what I want to share? Isn't this what I want to declare? That they too might be with me in glory. Glory for not just me, but for them as well. And so, if Jesus was to return tonight, how would you prepare? Well, in a sense, that needs to be our thinking every day. So, when tomorrow comes, it's not a normal day because Jesus can still return any day, suddenly, unexpectedly. And so, tonight, are you prepared? Are you really prepared? You want to be prepared. If you're not a Christian, come to faith. And if you're ready, tonight, let it be tonight, come to see me. If you are a Christian, make every minute count. Make every hour count. Make every day count. Make every year count. We don't waste it away. We live each day like Jesus is an hour away. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in making known to us that Jesus will return and so help us live lives where we are prepared. For those of us who are not yet believers, have not come to faith, we pray, Lord, that you might, in your kindness, bring them to faith. For us who are Christians, help us to long for that day, the day of glory, but help us to use our life now and not waste it away. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.